to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The headlines this past week were a lot of things, disturbing, ironic, and even inspiring. It depends on which headlines you read. On today's show, I'll be talking about some of these headlines about the most outrageous, the most hypocritical, and the most courageous things that people did this past week. Things that appeared in the news and made the headlines. And I'll tell you the stories behind the headlines. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and you're listening to The Friedman Report. So today, I want to read to you some headlines, the boldest, the most ridiculous, and the most inspiring headlines that appeared in the press this week. They'll make you want to laugh or cry or maybe just get angry at where this country may be heading. Here's the first headline, irony. This headline appeared on athletic.com last week. Quote, NFL celebrates the inclusiveness of an all-black officiating crew. Unquote. All-black. Inclusiveness? Really? Well, here's the rest of the story, and it's a mixture of good and not so good. It was the first time in the history of the National Football League that the entire crew of officials on the field at the game between the Los Angeles Rams and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All of them were black, and it was historic. But this is what Troy Vincent, who is the executive vice president of football operations for the NFL, said. He said, This historic Week 11 crew is a testament to the countless and immeasurable contributions of black officials to the game, their exemplary performance, and to the power of inclusion that is the hallmark of this great game, unquote. Now look, I'm all for the inclusion of all people into the world of sports, no matter what the color of their skin is. But here's the irony. The very fact that all the officials were black, and they made a big point of making sure we noticed that, maybe, just maybe, it means that this inclusion was made possible because they excluded any other available officials who might have been Hispanic or Asian or, God forbid, white, in order to enable management to make the statement they did about inclusion. And if that is the way it happened, and I don't know for sure, I'm guessing, then it's selecting the officials because of their race, because of the color of their skin, and not because of their qualifications. And there's more. Earlier last month, the team owners, who appeared to be belatedly woke, decided on a bunch of initiatives that were designed to hire more minority coaches and executives. First things first, the priority for them was the color of the candidate's skin, not the merit of their skill or experience. According to this decision, which took them 10 months of meetings and discussions to reach, each team that loses a minority staffer because he was hired away as head coach or general manager by another team, that team would get third-round compensatory picks in each of the next two drafts. And if a team were to lose two people of color hired away into both roles in the same year, 
they would get third-round compensatory picks in the next three drafts. In other words, the team owners seem to be employing what is known as the soft bigotry of low expectations by suggesting that minority members need special incentives in order to succeed. And they are basing their decision to create these incentives without, by the way, first receiving any input from the actual beneficiaries of their so-called generosity. And they're basing this largesse not on the merit of the individuals, not on the proven experience and expertise that they have, but on the color of their skin. That's not only insulting, it's hypocritical. And, by the way, it's racist. So much for inclusiveness. Now here's a headline from the New York Post on Monday. Quote, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's plea, stay away from Rockefeller Christmas tree, unquote. (laughs) Really? Okay, let's unwrap this a bit because it's just one more of de Blasio's idiotic requirements that the people of New York City must obey. Maybe a little history is required here. If you aren't familiar with the long and time-honored tradition of the Christmas tree lighting ceremony in Rockefeller Center in Midtown Manhattan. It's really quite impressive. The city traditionally brings in a huge and gorgeous evergreen tree which is mounted in the plaza of Rockefeller Center near the famous ice skating rink. And every year it is trimmed with thousands of gorgeous lights. And it is a major attraction for New Yorkers and tourists alike, and thousands come to see it every year. The tradition began in 1931. It was the height of the Great Depression, and the workers who were at the time building the Rockefeller Center decided to get together to buy a Christmas tree. Their tree was a 20-foot balsam fir, and they decorated it with homemade garlands. They did the same thing the next year. Two years later, Rockefeller Center made this a permanent tradition and brought in a 50-foot tree. Then, in 1936, they added the skating rink, and Christmas at Rockefeller Center became a lasting tradition that now draws thousands of people to the site every year and millions more who watch it on television. Until this year. In the typical fashion of New York politicians, Mayor de Blasio can't leave well enough alone. This year's tree was a 75-foot Norway spruce from Oneonta, New York, which is about 175 miles north of New York City. And this tree was dubbed the saddest-looking Christmas tree ever. Its branches were all askew, Some of them were stripped, and some were just gone. And it had none of the elegance of the traditional trees that have graced Rockefeller Center for so many years. One source said that it was mostly the New York City workers who destroyed the tree as they tried to get it in place. And according to this source, this tree destruction has happened every year since Bill de Blasio has been mayor. Although I don't think it's ever been this bad. Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick tweeted this. What is this, a joke? 
This is the Rockefeller Christmas tree for 2020. It depicts the mayor's city as it stands today, broken, empty, drained of its life by failed leadership and incompetence, unquote. In other words, the trials and tribulations that we have all been experiencing during 2020 are reflected in this poor, scrawny tree that now represents a broken New York City with its high crime rate, rabbit-sized rats swarming the Upper West Side, and this tree that was supposed to be so uplifting. Instead, it represents the failures of the mayor himself. But Mayor de Blasio wasn't finished. Wait, listen to this. Because after bringing his bargain basement Christmas tree to New York, he put tight restrictions on who could see it. Here are his rules. First of all, sorry, you just can't come and see the tree lighting ceremony at 8 p.m. on December 2nd. The public will simply not be allowed. And then if you still want to see it afterwards, up close and personal, you have to get a reservation. And then after you get your ticket and you stand in line for who knows how long and you finally get up close, you can only go in groups of four at a time and they'll tell you which four can go. And you have to be wearing a mask, even though it's all outdoors. And you have only five minutes to look and take a quick picture and then move right along, please. Or maybe no, please, because it's New York City after all. And it's Mayor de Blasio. I guess it's about what you'd expect from the man who will certainly go down in history as the worst mayor of New York City ever. There is one nice story to come out of all of this. During the transport of this giant, ugly spruce tree, a little solwet owl was rescued from its branches. The solwet owl is the smallest owl in the Northeast, and this bird was dubbed Rocky. It was treated at the Ravensbeard Wildlife Center in Saugerties, New York, which is between Oneonta and New York City. It was treated there, and it then returned to the wild. So at least that is a story with a happy ending. As for the rest, well, not so much. And here's another headline. Quote, New York City sends TLC workers to defiant SI bar, which locks doors and says it's closed. Unquote. SI stands for Staten Island which is one of the five boroughs of New York City. So here's the story as it appears in the New York Post. There is a bar on Staten Island, and this bar is called Max Public House. It's like other small restaurants and bar in that it was ordered to close its operations for indoor service because it was in what the government called a coronavirus hot zone. But the owners of Max Public House told the New York Post that they would disobey the orders from both the city and the state, and they declared their bar an autonomous zone, yep, just like in Seattle, and they decided to keep it open. So the New York State Department of Health gave them a shutdown order, which they disregarded. They received thousands of dollars in fines, which they haven't paid, and they stayed open. Then the Department of Health posted cease and desist orders on their windows, which somehow magically disappeared the next day. 
and Max Public House stayed open. Then on Sunday, after the bar opened for the afternoon crowd, two taxi and limousine commission peace officers who are responsible for making sure that local businesses pay their fines and obey the laws, well, they showed up. The owner locked the door, and when the peace officers asked them if it was closed, he said yes, although there were nine customers inside at the time. But in order to get around the business angle, they didn't charge for the drinks. They only asked for tips, to which the customers presumably were quite willing to agree. This story isn't over, and I'll bring you the next chapter when I get it. Now here's one more headline before we need to take a break, and it's related to the previous story because it's about what could happen to the owners of Max Public House if they have to give in to these endless restrictions and closures. The headline reads like this, quote, Nearly one-third of New York, New Jersey small businesses reportedly closed in 2020. That headline was on the Fox Business website. I suppose I need to give you more context, although I suspect that most of my listeners already understand the context. Under the misguided hands of New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo and New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy, small so-called non-essential businesses have been hit hard. Last March, Governor Murphy ordered the state's 9 million residents to stay home. That was except for absolutely essential reasons, like going shopping or going to the doctor. And he also ordered that all, quote, non-essential, unquote, businesses close until further notice. That's what he said. Only a week earlier, he had strongly suggested, in quotes, that all non-essential travel be canceled between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. But within just a few days, he changed his mind and ordered a complete shutdown, a 24-hour stay-home shutdown. The only people who were accepted from that order were so-called essential health care workers and emergency responders, and of course they are essential. And he also exempted those people who get to work in businesses that are allowed to be open, like supermarkets, and also to members of the media. That's essential. At about the same time in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo did more or less the same thing. On March 20th, he ordered the entire state to shut down. The order shut down all non-essential businesses and excluded only supermarkets and grocery stores and pharmacies and gas stations and liquor stores. Okay. He also exempted restaurants, but only for takeout service. Then, last week, he issued another order. This one on private homes just before the Thanksgiving holiday. He put a 10-person cap on family gatherings. All these lockdowns were ostensibly to protect New York and Jersey residents from spreading and contracting the China virus. But what he really did was deprive people of their livelihoods, prevent them from earning a living so they could pay the rent, feed their families, and lead a life with purpose. When school closed, working parents had to stay home. For many, life was tense. People were not used to spending 24 hours a day together in a close environment. Suddenly, they had no choice. 
And not unexpectedly, incidents of domestic violence grew rapidly, violent crime became more rampant, and nearly one-third of small businesses closed their doors forever. So their employees were no longer on furlough. They were now unemployed. These two governors, along with their comrades-in-arms in Michigan, California, Oregon, and Washington State, all these governors and mayors suffer from a God complex. They think they know better than their constituents. They think they have the right to order us around and control our lives, and they abuse the power that was given to them by the people they now insist on controlling. And the people who are most responsible for the way these men and women abuse their power are the very people who put them in office, the ones who elected them, and then re-elected them. It may sound harsh that they are getting what they deserve, but there is some truth to that. Our elected officials are supposed to represent us, not rule us. We'll talk a little more about this in a bit, within the context of the crisis that is going on in this country today, right after the break. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L, dot com slash sleep. Our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't talk about what's going on with the election scandal and the vote-counting machines that switched Trump votes to Biden votes, and all the other crimes that went along with that. You know what makes me really mad are the people in the mainstream media who refer to the accusations of fraudulent behavior as, quote, unfounded or, quote, untruthful, and who refer to Joe Biden as the undisputed president-elect. It's all rubbish. 
There is so much evidence to indicate that there was intentional fraud in virtually every swing state that it has been planned for a very long time and that the people behind it are all not only without remorse, but in fact, they continue to cover up the facts and to celebrate their victory. So for the people on the left, and particularly the people in the mainstream media, to call the accusations unfounded and false is worse than bad journalism. It's exactly what the president calls it. It's fake news. It's lies. They make it up to be what they want it to be without regard for either the truth or their own responsibility to report the news. And they make up their own version of what they call news. And they call the election for Biden long before the votes were even counted. And then they planted the facts on the ground so that they hoped they would not be disputed. And in the process, they have divided the country as it has not been divided since the Civil War nearly 140 years ago. As I've said before, the fourth estate, which was once the reputable and largely honest news industry, has now become a fifth column, which Britannica.com defines as, quote, a group of agents who attempt to undermine a nation's solidarity from within, unquote. What else would you call the efforts of the press to discredit a duly elected president throughout the entire four years of his tenure? Frankly, it seems that the Democrats and their allies in the media have created their own version of the truth, and they're working overtime to sell it to the American people, even if CNN and MSNBC don't want to report it. In Arizona, for example, Testimony came out on Tuesday that in Maricopa County, votes were manipulated by the Dominion voting machines. One witness testified to actually seeing Trump votes being turned into Biden votes as the paper ballots were fed into the Dominion machines. And this witness then told of being threatened by the Democrats and warned not to speak of anything they had seen to anyone. Another witness was retired Army Colonel Phil Waldron, who is a cyber and political warfare specialist. He testified that votes in the 2020 election actually left the country to be counted. Why would we ever let that happen? Well, he explained it this way. He said, we would not have the legal jurisdiction to seize servers located outside the country, unquote. So, if you want to make sure that your servers don't get seized and audited, it makes sense that you would want to keep them outside the country, and in this case, he said, they were in Frankfurt, Germany. He also confirmed in his testimony that some of the machines were connected to the Internet, which, of course, made them far more vulnerable to intrusion and manipulation. And that was, I think, the whole point. He said that during the election... On November 3rd and 4th, they saw a 30 to 40% spike in the computer traffic in Frankfurt that was directly connected to the processing of election results. Waldron also said that an audit of each server would allow them to find out where the servers for each country are located. 
But, he said, quote, we are unable to get those servers because the companies claim it is their intellectual property, unquote. Who in the world would ever agree to that? Well, it seems that the approvals were given at the local levels where understanding of these complicated issues might not be so high. Arizona, in fact, had a host of problems related to the way the Dominion equipment and the people who operated them handled the votes. For example, and we're still in Arizona, 1.9 million mail-in ballots did not have verified signatures. And a verified signature is required for a ballot to be validated. One IT worker testified to being at a Democrat meeting where, by the way, recording devices were forbidden, and said that at that meeting, they discussed how to begin the count by giving every Democrat 35,000 extra votes in every local and federal race. No wonder they didn't want recording devices in the room. So let's figure this out. Okay, 35,000 extra votes per Democrat candidate. Let's say that the allegation of illegal votes is true. Then the 35,000 votes would be more than enough, in fact, three times more than enough, to flip Arizona from Trump to Biden. But how could they hide so many votes, 35,000 votes per candidate? Well, the explanation was that the distribution of votes would be embedded across the entire registered voter range and would not exceed the number of registered voters. And how did they reach the magic number of 35,000? Well, that number was determined to be the highest number that could get through the system without raising any red flags based on the number of registered voters in the district. And the actual voter turnout, as opposed to the total of registered voters, would determine how many actual votes they could embed. But what happened instead was that instead of a vote count of, say, 65 to 67%, which is the average voter turnout in a presidential election, in this election, once they added the extra votes, the turnout became more like 95 to 99% of the registered voters. At best, that rate is so improbable that it's practically impossible. Which leads me to another witness in Arizona, Bobby Python, whose financial background enabled him to demonstrate those mathematical anomalies that he said simply could not be explained as happening by chance. And then, guess what? Immediately after he gave his testimony, Twitter suspended his account. I bet you didn't see that coming. Now, in case you were wondering when the social media giants would show up and what role they would play, that's another big indication that big tech and the Democrat machine are working closely together to ensure that Joe Biden wins the election through whatever means necessary. Twitter also censored hashtag Arizona hearing and canceled the tweets of people who were discussing the hearing as it was going on. What do you suppose they were trying to hide? The basic takeaway from all this is that if you're on the left and you don't like what's being said 
and you have control of the on-off switch, you can call it misleading or false information and take it offline. Anywhere else, this would be called censorship. But here in America, where free speech is supposed to be the rule, they call it protecting their subscribers from, quote, misleading, unquote, information. So much for free speech. So here we are. The president and his team are in a fight for the life and credibility of the American electoral system. Never before has our voting process been so flawed or so untrustworthy. The 2020 elections have been massively corrupted, and they have failed the American people. There's nothing baseless about it, no matter what the mainstream media says to the contrary. Rudy Giuliani put it plainly in Arizona. He said, it's clear that the numbers are false. It's clear that you have included ballots that aren't properly inspected. It's clear that you are including ballots that are voted by other people. It's clear that you are using machines that have been shown to be totally manipulated in other places, and you won't give us the opportunity to examine those machines. I think anybody who puts their name on that is getting very close to committing a crime. Unquote. The Arizona hearings were a cry for justice, but the witnesses were crying in the dark. Jenna Ellis, who was one of the president's attorneys, told the representatives who were present, quote, We are going to ask you, as legislators, to reclaim that authority and to make sure that the people of Arizona and indeed the people of the United States of America as a whole are not disenfranchised by corruption, unquote. But their voices, together and separately, only had limited reach. It should surprise no one that not one reporter from the mainstream media bothered to show up to cover the story. And it was a story. And Twitter deleted the hashtag Arizona hearing and censored any tweets that referred to the events while they were happening. The news was censored because it didn't fit the narrative that the Democrats and the mainstream media want America to hear. Arizona's House Democrats called the hearing a meaningless waste of time. Of course they did. And it's not just in Arizona, by the way. In Pennsylvania, during the last legislative hearing, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis brought witnesses to testify to the state Senate about voter fraud. Senator Colonel Doug Mastriano led the session that revealed an awful lot of pertinent information regarding the voter fraud. It didn't take long, only a few hours in fact, before Mastriano's personal Twitter account was suspended. One very compelling witness said this, quote, My name is Gregory Strenstrom. I'm from Delaware County, former commanding officer in the Navy, veteran of foreign wars, CEO of my own private company, a data scientist and forensic computer scientist, and an expert in security and fraud. In all cases, the chain of custody was broken. It was broken for the mail-in ballots, the Dropbox ballots, the Election Day USB card flash drives, 
In all cases, they didn't follow any of the procedures defined by the Board of Delaware County of Elections, unquote. And then he added this, quote, I personally observed USB cards being uploaded to voting machines by the voting machine warehouse supervisor on multiple occasions. This person is not being observed. He's not part of the process that I can see. And he is walking in with baggies of USBs. I observed in the locked room in the back office 70,000 unopened mail-in ballots. The problem was that by that time, the mail-in ballots had already been counted. 120,000 mail-in ballots had been counted, posted, done. My question is, where did the 70,000 ballots go? And nobody knows. I want to see where the data is coming in, and I want to know the universe of votes. There were supposed to be 120,000 mail-in ballots, with 6,000 ballots remaining. So the universe should be 126,000 votes. When I get back there, we don't have 126,000. We have 200,000 votes, unquote. The hearing, which was held in Gettysburg, was called by Senator Mastriano in order to, as he said, quote, find out what the heck happened in this election. Over the past few weeks, he said, I've heard from thousands of Pennsylvanians regarding issues experienced at the polls, irregularities with a mail-in voting system, and concerns about whether their vote was counted. We need to correct these issues to restore faith in our republic, unquote. Those are pretty strong words. And Pennsylvania Commonwealth Judge Patricia McCullough apparently agreed. So on Friday, November 27th, she ordered Pennsylvania not to certify the results of the 2020 election. She said, and I quote, the petitioners appear to have a viable claim that the mail-in ballot procedures set forth in Act 77 contravene, unquote, the provision of the Pennsylvania Constitution that addresses absentee voting. And on the same day, Republican members of the Pennsylvania General Assembly introduced a resolution that would, if passed by its members, declare the results of the 2020 presidential election to be in dispute. The resolution, quote, urges the Secretary of the Commonwealth and the Governor to withdraw or vacate the certification of presidential electors and to delay certification of results in other statewide electoral contests voted on at the 2020 general election, unquote. And yet, with all the evidence piling up to indicate a massive fraud and cover-up attempt, the mainstream media, the Democrat Party, and even the federal government agencies have seen no evil. According to a joint statement by the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency, who oversee the U.S. election security, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes changed votes, or was in any way compromised, unquote. And the DHS has called this last election, quote, the most secure in American history, unquote. They refer to any conflicting account as conspiracy theories. This story is far from over. The accumulating evidence of massive fraud of many kinds, from middle-of-the-night ballot dumps with all the ballots bulleted for Biden, 
huge numbers of vote flipping from Trump to Biden, large numbers of invalid ballots being counted and sometimes counted multiple times, ballot counters changing markings on ballots, massive additions to the number of voters, and on and on and on. The scope of the corruption that permeated this election is unlike anything ever seen in the United States before. And to say it must be identified and stopped and the criminals who perpetrated should be punished, all that is stating the obvious. And yet to the left, it's anything but obvious. It's only conspiracy theory. It falls into the category of the dog ate my homework. If you say it long enough and loud enough and often enough, even you begin to believe it, only it's false. If our judicial system holds itself to the standards that our founding fathers built into our government, then the truth will prevail and the integrity of our national elections will be preserved. There seems to be little doubt that there is a great deal of Democrat power behind the long list of dirty tricks that they used to turn the election from red to blue, and that will be a major stumbling block on the path to justice. But if the Democrats are, in the end, able to prevail in spite of all the evidence of their criminal activities, what will be the reaction of the 73 million people who voted for Donald Trump? We'll talk about that right after the break. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Now, before the break, I asked a question. If the Democrats prevail, what will the 73 million people who voted for Trump but were disenfranchised by the Democrats' dirty tricks, what will they do? We already know what the left will do if the courts decide for President Trump. We've seen it on the streets of Seattle and Portland and Chicago, Minneapolis, New York, Atlanta, and countless other cities. The so-called peaceful demonstrations that end in riots, the wanton destruction, the lawlessness, and the reversion to violence. But if Trump is unsuccessful and Biden becomes the president, how will the tens of millions of Trump supporters react? Will they take to the streets? Will they take out their rage on their neighbors the way the left has done? In the past, when huge numbers of Trump supporters have congregated, they've been peaceful and respectful. And when it's time to go home, they have picked up their trash and they left the place more or less as they found it. For example, when 20,000 Virginians demonstrated at the State House to protest the governor's proposed gun laws, that's exactly how they behaved. No riots, no damage, not even any trash left behind. 
Here's what I fear, that in the event that the Biden camp is successful, that their bag of dirty tricks has worked and Joe Biden becomes president, this may be what happens next. The American people who have been disenfranchised by the Democrats and their allies in the media will indeed rise up and they'll demonstrate in great numbers in cities all over the country. And these demonstrations will be largely peaceful, even though the people will be angry. But they'll carry their flags, and they'll chant their slogans, and then they'll go home. But the people on the left, they'll also show up. These are the people who have been rioting in American cities throughout the country for over a year. And they now will feel empowered by the swell of victory. And they'll counter these protests, these demonstrations, with violence. We've already seen that. They've done it before. At first, the confrontations will be limited. But over time, and not too much time, I'm afraid, the violence will spread and grow. And this, my friends, is how the next civil war will begin. And if this happens, what will Joe Biden do? What is he even capable of doing? We're in uncharted waters, my friends, and very dangerous ones. Whatever happens over the next few days and weeks will decide the path that America takes for many, many years to come. Now, here's a part of what we're going to have to deal with in the coming days and weeks and months, and it isn't even here in America. There's a big world out there, and it's easy to forget, because there is so much of consequence going on right here at home. But let's take a look at the other side of the world, the Middle East. The Middle East has been a tinderbox from time immemorial, thousands of years. It was always right in the crossroads between Europe and Asia and Africa. Countless armies marched through it and fought each other over and over again. So first the good news, and there is good news. President Donald Trump did something that no president before him has been able to do. And he did it with creativity and imagination, and he achieved something that no president before him even thought of. He created a legitimate pathway for the normalization of relations between Israel and her Muslim neighbors. This was major. This has rebalanced the entire region and has given a new spirit of hope to millions of people. And so far, it has worked. Israel now has strong economic ties with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan, who have already forged new relationships with their former enemy. And more Muslim countries are already being courted and have shown signs of strong interest. The prospects for peace that this represents are enormous in a region that has been fraught with war since forever. The rebalancing of the region with the nuclear threat that Iran poses to all these nations took imagination and a savvy knowledge of how to leverage economic opportunity into something approaching real peace in the region. This was all the doing of one man, 
President Donald J. Trump and his team. There is a lot of backstory to this major development in the Middle East, but for now, I think it's enough just to give credit where it's due to the man who made it happen. Because the growing storm in the region coming out of Iran creates a threat, a nuclear threat to every country in that part of the world. And in this time of great uncertainty at home, we will need him, Donald Trump, more than ever. But he may not be there to lead us. And that's what I want to talk to you about next. Let's talk about Iran and about the threat that nation, run by fanatical lunatics, poses to the region and to the world. The Iranian people are overall good people, but they've been ruled by radical religious tyrants since the revolution that brought the Ayatollah Khomeini into power in 1979. The country, which had until then been largely secular, where women were free to dress as they pleased, and to add true value to their country, and the economy was largely open. The Shah was a tyrant in his own right, and his secret police, known as Savak, were feared by everyone because they were known for their brutality. They were the Shah's enemy's worst nightmare. But Iran had excellent relations with Israel, and was Israel's primary supplier of oil for years. In return, Israel provided Iran with its know-how in agriculture, business, and the military, and that was very important. There used to be daily El Al flights between Tehran and Tel Aviv. Young Israelis fresh out of the army saw Tehran as a wonderful travel destination before settling down to an adult life in Israel. There was even an Israeli school in Tehran. It was one of two in the world outside of Israel. And there was a thriving Israeli community in Iran. But the fall of the Shah in 1979 and the rise of the Islamic State ended all that. When the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power following the Islamic Revolution, he imposed a harsh Islamic culture on the formerly free people of Iran. What had once been a relatively free country became enslaved under the tyranny of the new Islamic government. And it stayed that way for more than 40 years. And one more thing, Israel became Iran's primary enemy. One of the primary goals of this ambitious and tyrannical government has been to become a nuclear power. And that work has been a driving force for Iran's foreign and domestic policy for many years. So in 2012, when the threat of UN inspectors loomed large on Iran's nuclear horizon, the government moved a big piece of their nuclear development to North Korea. There, their scientists work with the North Korean counterparts on at least three projects, to develop a powerful plutonium bomb, to miniaturize their missile delivery system, and to develop a MIRV warhead. MIRV, M-I-R-V, stands for Multiple Independently Targetable Reentry Vehicle. That's a mouthful. What that is, is a missile payload with multiple warheads that can be fired independently at multiple targets. Kind of scary, don't you think? In Iranian or North Korean hands? 
And that collaboration went on for a number of years, at least, until Mount Mantop, which was the mountain under which they were testing their nuclear bombs, until it began to collapse, which ended that part of their nuclear cooperation. The Obama administration was good for Iran. Accommodation was the name of the game for the American president. Accommodation and appeasement. And Iran was happy to go along. Under the leadership of Secretary of State John Kerry, the U.S. negotiated the JCPOA that gave Iran just about everything they wanted, including a path to becoming a nuclear power, with only limited U.N. inspections that met Iran's devious requirements. And in fact, Iran breached that deal at the Natanz fuel enrichment plant by replacing their first-generation IR-1 centrifuges which were supposed to be the only ones Iran was allowed to have at that site, they replaced them with advanced cascade centrifuges for enriching their uranium. So that is a breach of the 2015 nuclear agreement. And two weeks ago, this breach was publicly identified by the International Atomic Energy Association, and it was confirmed by Iran. Obama's idea was that the JCPOA would keep Iran from moving forward with their nuclear ambitions, and it was clearly wrong. President Trump's policies toward Iran, on the other hand, they were intended to put maximum economic pressure on Iran through sanctions. And these sanctions have crippled their economy and isolated the country. This was a true peace-through-strength approach, and it worked because it crippled the Iranian ambition to attack the world. But the Obama-Biden legacy was one of appeasement, and it looks like Biden is ready to follow in Obama's footsteps. Obama's international policy with Muslim countries was always one of appeasement. He gave the world's biggest state sponsor of terrorism, Iran, a plane full of cash in return for four American prisoners whom Iran had held hostage. And by the way, Iran would not release them until that plane full of cash was on the tarmac. And this money, for sure, we know it for sure, didn't go to build infrastructure or improve the lives of the Iranian people. It went to support terrorism, Hamas, Hezbollah, and others. And the policy of appeasement led to the signing of the JCPOA. That's what we did best under Obama. The best that can be said about the JCPOA is that it gives the U.S. and the other countries who signed it a false sense of security because Iran never intended to honor it, and they didn't. Once Trump was in the White House, he was able to keep Iran in line through harsh sanctions that nearly destroyed the government. And between you and me, that would have been a good thing. Iranian soldiers weren't being paid or fed, and only the IRGC, the elite Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, only they received adequate financial benefits and food. At the same time, inflation was rampant. The price of gas doubled overnight, and a popular uprising was growing exponentially and threatened to bring down the government. At one point, the Ayatollah was so worried that he and his senior clerics sent their families abroad, just in case. Then the China virus came. It impacted the failing economy, and it also stopped the spreading popular demonstrations against the Iranian government cold. 
Now Biden says he wants to renegotiate the JCPOA and lift the sanctions, and he has a lot of support. But the support comes largely from people who don't understand their adversaries and whose personal and financial interests outweigh their common sense. So the argument now is that Iran broke the deal and has enriched its uranium in spite of the deal. Critics see this as a Trump failure, but they're wrong. Because of his firm hand with Iran, President Trump has kept the Middle East from dissolving into another war. It's interesting, you know, that former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who served under every president since Richard Nixon, except for Bill Clinton, he said that Biden has been, quote, wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades, unquote. Wow, that's pretty strong. The nuclear deal with Iran is certainly no exception. Biden thinks that such a deal is permanent in its commitment. He doesn't seem to understand that every country sees its own interest in these multi-nation deals, and that every person sitting at the table also has a stake in the outcome, personal as well as national. And the Iranians are no different, and they don't think the way we do. As we already know, the Iranians broke that deal a long time ago. And they were able to do that because whatever inspection requirements there were in the deal, they were not nearly strong enough and could never have been enforced. And beyond that, we know that Iran went to great lengths to avoid inspection. As I mentioned before, these included moving its R&D to North Korea, where both governments continued to work on nuclear projects without any United Nations inspections at all. But now we are facing a new threat. Last year, when Iran began to shell our troops in Iraq, President Trump sent them a very strong message. Very few people knew about it, but the threat from America was real and imminent, and Tehran knew it. All of a sudden, the shelling stopped, and Iran announced that it was over. President Trump withdrew the threat, and that immediate crisis was over. But in a similar situation, what would Biden do? Would he try to negotiate while our soldiers were under attack? Or would he do what Obama did in Benghazi? Obama did nothing. And four brave Americans died that night. The problem that Donald Trump is facing right now is how to protect America from Joe Biden when it comes to Iran. If Biden reopens the JCPOA negotiations... Iran will be emboldened, and they'll enhance their nuclear development right in the open, and the world will be in much greater danger. In fact, Iran has already said that it will not renegotiate the deal. They'll only sit down to the deal, quote, if they return to the agreement as it was on January 20th, 2017, the day when Mr. Trump took office. Then we'll be ready to return to that too, unquote. So what is there to negotiate? The Iranians are relieved at the prospect of a Biden presidency. They won't have to deal with Donald Trump anymore, and they can go back to getting what they want and not worry about consequences, because there won't be any. President Trump has only a few options, because he knows that if he does not get his second term, Biden will destroy much of what he has done, and America will be at great risk from Iran and from within. 
So Trump's options are limited. How to keep America safe. Last week, the senior nuclear scientist in Iran was assassinated. Iran has already threatened revenge on Israel and on us. Israel is gearing up for an attack. But as long as Donald Trump is in the White House, I feel reasonably safe. And we'll have to see what he is willing to do in the weeks that remain of his first term. Stay tuned. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.